0: Hey listeners, a few months ago I had Shane, also known as UFO Bigfoot, from Dark Notes Podcast join me in a bedtime story. He snuggled with me in bed and helped me relax by telling me stories of his own fucked up paranormal experiences, some of which may or may not have been under the influence of acid. And today we do kinda the same. Shane and myself have prepared five stories each, which may or may not involve acid, in an effort to replicate his own podcast by reading each other very weird fucked up shit. Oh, you're gonna be hearing stories of giant wasps. Or gnomes riding miniature cars in a forest. Or how about giant space clams floating over the deserts of Nevada. Even Amish country wood-eating goose grabbers. Yeah, you heard it right. And even one very (laughs) weird story of a ritual where a circle of dogmen started drinking shrimp cocktails only to start transforming into nuns that shrank... Into little people. Uh, Just listen. Hello, Shane.
1: hey buddy how you
0: doing long time no see huh that's
1: right yeah
0: so i i wanted to kind of try doing an episode again with you without the cosmic joker fucking us over yeah <laughs> now uh last time i was like replicating the way you guys recorded using anchor now we're using zoom or i'm not gonna use anchor ever again <laughs> But yeah, <laughs> uh, let's try to replicate the contents of the show you do. So for my listeners, can you tell them uh, what your podcast is all about?
1: Yes, me and my friend Lisa have a podcast called Dark Notes. It's really basic, really simple. We just we're both into the paranormal and the weird and the strange. And each episode, we just gather things pretty much for each other's entertainment. The podcast is just like a phone call back and forth. We give paranormal accounts and all that stuff. Oh,
0: yeah. So essentially it's story time, but like you guys don't read off of Wikipedia. You go into the Albert Rosales, you know, humanoid catalog and stuff like that. I I have
1: to admit that I probably depend on Albert Rosales too much, but I really, (laughs) really love his
0: books. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Um, It's very interesting. Even where you guys dig the stories out. Like I I chat with Lisa in one of your episodes, she was talking about a witness seeing some kind of ghost raccoon or something. And she dug that out of some memoir book from, from the author that has nothing to do with the paranormal. It's just some anecdotal story he he included in, in the book.
1: Those are some of my favorites. Yeah. The we're both always been really voracious readers. Yes. So that helps. Yeah, there's actually a couple of the ones I gathered for today were from books that I read when I was 17 that just had little accounts in it that I remembered and was like, oh, I I really like that. So
0: yes, yes. So my plan for today, I told you like gather five cases or stories and I'll gather five and we're just going to read them to each other just as you guys do on your podcast.
1: Fantastic.
0: Maybe comment um, the five I got are are five that are my kind of most favorite currently. (laughs)
1: oh i'm excited to hear man that's great so
0: maybe i should start with mine yeah because mine first one is very short and the further we go the more intricate they become this story is something that i wanted to cover on my podcast for quite a while now but i can't dedicate a whole episode to it because there's nothing to it this is from actually passport to magonia from Jacques Vallée. Oh, nice. Yes, this is one of the first cases he mentions in the book, but it goes unnoticed and unacknowledged in all the other literature because right after his, right after talking about this case, he then talks about Lani Zamora and the Kentucky Goblins and stuff like that. <laughs> so this was included in Vallée's Passport to Magonia and then in Dimension's a casebook. It was also a letter that was sent to Otto Binder and later to Fate magazine as well. I think it was published in Fate Magazine in 1968. And then Valet published it again in Passport to Magonia a year later.
1: I love Fate Magazine.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, I wanted to search for the original Fate Magazine article that featured this. I wanted to even ask uh, AP Strange because he has a back catalog of these old Fate Magazine issues. But I think there's, you know, nothing to this because this is essentially a letter that was sent to multiple parties by the witness. Cool. Yeah. And the letter states, in January... January of 1958. I was traveling west at about 1.30 a.m. in a bad snowstorm going to see my son who was in the army. I believe the throughway was closed and I was trying to find an exit. As I drove carefully along I suddenly saw what appeared to be an airplane wreck on the center of the parkway. A large shape was visible and a slim rod, at least 50 feet high, was illuminated and getting shorter as though it was sinking into the ground. So essentially there was some kind of shape in the middle of the road and a 50 foot long rod... That was illuminated. Wow. What was uh, going into the ground? So, you know, the more it was going down into the ground, the shorter it was becoming. Yeah. My motor slowed down, and as I came closer, my car stopped completely by itself. I became panicky and tried desperately to start it as I had no lights anymore. My first thought was to get out and see what was happening, but I suddenly saw two shapes rising around the slim pole, which was still growing shorter. They seemed suspicious. Bended, but moving about it. They seemed to be like animals with four legs and a tail, but two front feelers under the head like arms. So essentially, like two four legged quadrupedal animals, you know, with a tail. Yeah. But they have two feelers like tentacles under their heads. <laughs> and two of them emerged from this object and were, you know, moving slowly alongside the pole that was growing shorter <laughs> into the ground. Wow. Then, before I could even grasp, the things disappeared and the shape rose and I then realized it was a saucer. It spun and zoomed about 10 feet off the ground and up into the air and I couldn't even see where it went. My lights suddenly came on, I started the car and w- and it was alright. I pulled up to where the place was, got out with a flashlight, and walked over to where it was sitting. A large hole was melted into the snow about a foot across and grass was showing. The grass was warm but nothing was dug up around there. I drove to a motel for the night. When I told my 18 year old son, he cautioned me not to repeat it and looked at me with sympathy, which discouraged me from talking about it. Now, this is something that you may have seen mentioned in many, you know, humanoid or alien books. Yeah, They're essentially the four legged creatures with two feelers under their head. Sometimes they're uh, depicted as six legged creatures.
1: Yeah. And the the rods of light Mm -hmm. are very interesting. I can't remember the guy's name, the guy who recorded the Sierra Sounds in Northern California Mm -hmm. that was recording the Bigfoot around there at their uh, hunter camp, he would see rods of light kind of just flying around the woods. I thought that was... Oh,
0: wow. So they were like without a UFO or anything, just rods of light.
1: Right. Well, in that same area was Bigfoot activity and balls of light. But Mm -hmm. he talked quite a bit about these rods of light that were just floating around.
0: Yes. Well, that's interesting because... In this case, so how other writers talk about it, I know it's mentioned in the Field Guide to Extraterrestrials. It's mentioned in some children's alien encyclopedias I have here. Yeah. They're often mentioned as Niagara aliens because they were seen near Niagara Falls in New York. Oh, wow yeah online they're called the syracuse insect alien something like that because this was (laughs) near syracuse new york uh, around that same area and insect because you know it has six legs but the interesting part is that most people interpret them as kind of alien pets or mechanics yeah trying to fix a downed ufo with this rod like object
1: (laughs) (laughs) very strange yeah
0: yeah but the way the witness talks about it it seems like these things were like pole dancing you know around this rod oh man yeah so so it's a very very interesting thing like a downed craft this 50 foot tall pole of light emerging from the top but going into it like dropping downwards into the craft even though it's 50 foot long. And as it's dropping, these two entities just emerge from the UFO and just kind of float around it. Kind of like those snakes coiling up around the pole on those uh, me- that medical symbol. I don't know what's, what it's called.
1: Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I was just yes. thinking- thing.
0: Yeah, so yeah, that's a very interesting case for me. I'd like to look into more cases of six-legged animal-like entities, but you know, it's very hard to to even search for that.
1: Yeah, that's even unusual for the stuff we're into. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's a good one. Yeah.
0: Now I have some more info on this. So this was, this sighting occurred in 1958, but the letter was sent in 1968 to multiple parties. So this witness is talking about something that happened a decade prior. The reason Jacques Vallée included it in Passport to Magonia is because it's a very outlier case. You know, it's not a humanoid case. Right. It's very weird and high strangeness, but it has these elements of, say, something being left imprinted into the snow. So, you know, physical uh, material evidence and also the witness's car stopped. And that's what (laughs) Jacques Vallée uh, really enjoyed. Um,
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Yeah, he he opened Passport to Magonia with this case as, see, this is a very strange thing, but it left uh, physical evidence, though, you know, nobody documented it because this is just a letter about a story that happened 10 years prior. Right. From what I gather, searching online, this letter was sent to Heineck And you know how Heineck had this pile of outlier cases. So I think Jacques Vallée stumbled upon this letter in Heineck's archives or something and was like, wow, he's keeping this outlier case away from the public.
1: It's just a reminder how important it is to preserve these things. Yes. You know, um, and to keep these for other people to go to because something that wasn't wasn't interesting to Hynek was interesting to uh, Belay, you know?
0: Yes, yes. And I think this letter was sent to Otto Binder as well. I don't know what he did with it. You know that Otto Binder was also a ufologist, but a very prominent comic book creator. What's his name? Otto Binder.
1: yeah. I need to dig deeper into that. Mm
0: -hmm. Cool. Okay, man. Uh, What's
1: your story? (laughs) Okay. This one is when I was around 17, I really got into reading Robert Anton Wilson books. He wrote about, 30 books in his lifetime. And I think what he was most famous for was the science fiction novel Illuminatus. This was from a series of his nonfiction books, the Cosmic Trigger trilogy, and this is Cosmic Trigger 2. So this was a personal experience of his that involves acid and Crowley and magic.
0: Oh, wow. You're hitting it hard right at the start. Yeah.
1: <laughs> in a farm in Mendicino, 1972, I was preparing for the Mass of the Phoenix, a ritual designed by Aleister Crowley in which the magician attempts to activate his true will. I had taken 250 micrograms of acid, played some Beethoven, and when I felt ready, I went to my makeshift author, and began the invocation. East of the altar, see me stand with light and music in my hand. I lifted the cakes of light and chanted the next lines. This bread I eat, this oath I swear, as I inflame myself with prayer. There is no grace, there is no guilt. This is the law do what thou wilt. Suddenly, the room was invaded by dog-faced demons who formed a ring around me. They were black and quite sinister, and they slavered and were froth a bit at the mouth, and they looked quite as solid as the bed and writing table behind them. Oh damn, I thought, Crowley always warned us this sort of thing could happen, but I never took it seriously. (laughs) I thought it was another of his jokes. Now what do I do? On one level, I was seriously frightened, but on another level, I felt confident of my hard-learned ability to navigate in the infernal regions of psychedelic space or in the astral realm or whatever you want to call this particular unlovely reality tunnel. I recalled something from H.P. Lovecraft. Do not call up any that you cannot put down. That was not helpful. But then I remembered from some book on shamanism. If you feed them, they will become allies instead of foes. I concentrated on party food, and the altar was suddenly full of shrimp cocktails with hot red sauce. I hadn't planned that, and it surprised and amused me. I had unconsciously invoked one of my favorite snacks. I began distributing the shrimp Cocktails to the demons. They accepted them and then turned into all the nuns I remembered from my grammar school days. (laughs) They also shrunk into rather comic dwarfs. In school, they had been bigger than me, but now I was bigger than them. They had lost all ability to terrify me. I started to laugh and realized the ritual was, in one sense, ruined. In another sense, it had been a great success. I broke the circle and grounded the energy, and the nuns faded away. Then I sprawled on the bed and laughed like a blithering idiot for a half hour. That was one of the many, many times I felt totally convinced that all the, quote, entities invoked in magic are parts of our own minds. Uh-huh. Then, then the room started to shake. The bed was jumping like a scene from The Exorcist, and the whole house seemed to shift on its foundation. Just another California earthquake. Coincidence, only a minor trembler, actually. <laughs> That's it.
0: Wow. Yeah. <laughs> So the dude was high on acid, was it? Yeah. <laughs> and and saw a circle of black uh, drooling dogmen around yeah. him, <laughs> manifested shrimp cocktails, gave it to them, they turned into nuns who then
1: turned into shrunk.
0: Dwarf. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But it's very interesting that he says that he uh, learned that day that all of these entities are part of our own minds.
1: Right, and he would go back and forth with that. Robert Anton Wilson has definitely been a big part of my life. He had a quote he about agnosticism. He says he's ag- he was agnostic about everything. Mm-hmm. He tried his hardest not to uh, succumb to belief. Yeah, so he would go through these heavy experiences and try and keep his skepticism you know
0: as john keel said belief is the enemy
1: right exactly
0: i also find it very funny how he intentionally you know did this um ritual whatever and now dogman manifested around him and he's like oh fuck crowley warned us about this (laughs) yeah i
1: said this would happen (laughs) (laughs) i like that too
0: Oh, man. Usually when people talk about uh, battling demonic entities, it's exorcism or, you know, saying the power of Christ compels you. Right? No, he just manifests uh, shrimp cocktails and has a party with them.
1: Right. It, 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 it's so basic, but so genius. It's like, yeah, feed them. Everybody likes you know?
0: Wow. Okay. (laughs) Do do you know about the many cases where uh, people stumble upon entities and uh, the entities are hostile towards them? Like, say, the two boys that were chased and attacked by aliens until one boy decided to give the aliens a glass of water.
1: No, that's fascinating, though. I love those.
0: Yes. It looks like there are many of these cases where food offerings to the entities kind of calm them down, uh, dispel the hostile situation. Yeah. We see this even with men in black encounters. If you know the uh, story of the woman in the Ohio Valley who was visited by a man in black who was uh, saying that he's some kind of military official, I can't remember what name he used, but essentially she offered him jello and he didn't know what to do with it. <laughs>
1: oh, yeah, I remember that one. Yeah.
0: Yeah yeah uh, i can't remember his name major french or something like that
1: yeah yeah Very i love it. um i haven't read it but i just love that joshua kutchen wrote a whole book on this
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know yes <laughs> yeah I'm, i've been reading his uh new one it's fascinating
0: oh his new one is a doozy it's yeah two giant tomes. <laughs>
1: yeah it's it's heavy <laughs>
0: Okay, man, then going on to my next story, and this is a (laughs) kind of silly one that I heard my friend Cole Harrell talk about on another podcast. I think his appearance on Todd Purse's show, but also Cole, my friend on his own blog, New World Explorer Society, did a whole article on this case, but I'm going to read from the original source material that Cole sent to me. Mm -hmm. And the original source is the Pursuit newsletter, volume seven, number one from January of 1974 nice it goes on to state in the Lancaster Pennsylvania area big valley in quotation marks residents saw a creature the size of a good hayfer. I don't know what it is is that ah, gray in color with a white mane it had tiger-like fangs and curved horns like a billy goat so something like a sheep squat you know (laughs) it ran upright on long legs and had long grizzly claws two brothers saw the creature approaching while they were bringing in a load of hay the team of of horses bolted and both brothers were thrown from the wagon. Neither was injured seriously. The ground was dry and hard and no tracks were found. The next evening, another farmer was clearing weeds from a fence row near the foot of a mountain about five miles from the first occurrence. He heard a ferocious roar and turned to see the appalling creature charging towards him. At the last moment he swung his scythe in an effort to defend himself, but it was torn out of his hands. He fled and luck escaped with his life. This man added to the first description that the creature had three horns and a tail. The next morning, investigators found that the creature had apparently eaten all of the wooden parts of the scythe. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing was left except a blade and some bolts. It was speculated that the creature craved salt as a result of the prolonged heat wave. Ugh, these cryptozoology guys, like y- you find just the metal parts of a scythe and then you speculate, hey, this creature ate the wood of the scythe Yeah. <laughs> b- because it was craving salt or some shit.
1: Yeah, they've got <laughs> oh, man. it figured out. Yes. <laughs> Ugh.
0: But then another account, again on the following evening, at a farm about midway between the first two, a woman was feeding her chickens when she heard a commotion. She turned to see the creature grabbing two of her largest geese, one in each paw. With more indignation than common sense, she gave chase waving her apron wildly. The creature turned and threw one of the geese at her with such force that it knocked her to the ground, then made good its escape. So the creature (laughs) tried to... uh, snatch two geese from this woman, and then... (laughs) threw one of the geese at her knocking her down <laughs> the report stated that there were a lot of nervous farmers in the big valley in quotation marks and i say quotation marks because cole told me that he looked into this case and where they say this happened whereas at lancaster pennsylvania there is no big valley but there is a big valley in other counties around it so right. cole thinks that this was maybe yellow journalism or maybe that whoever was writing this did not do a good job with the research i also should mention that these people who saw this creature were Amish. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So it's like an Amish sheep squatch thing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that it eats wood off of sides and tries to steal people's geese. And Cole, on his blog, dubbed this creature the wood-eating Amish County Goose Grabber. <laughs> <laughs> Now, why I say sheep squatch is because uh, this creature is apparently bipedal, uh, very towering. It has a white mane, you know, yeah. and is gray in color. And it had tiger-like fangs. It had claws, but also uh, curved horns like a billy goat. And then other witnesses said instead of two horns, it had three horns. This is something we sh- see with sheep squatch. Though sheep squatch was not present in the '70s, it started in 1990. Four, I think, but every person who encounters the sheep squatch has like a different account of what it is, like different number of horns or different number of eyes. Some people say sheep squatch has four eyes. Some say it has two. You know, right? So every person that saw this thing, and these were multiple witnesses throughout the whole day, uh, saw a different variation of the creature.
1: (laughs) Wow. (laughs) <laughs> there's there's some image that's in my mind, but I can't remember where it's from. It's like an occult image of a, a sheep with four eyes. I'll ah. have to do some digging and see what the source of that is. But.
0: I know that my friend Christina draws uh, jackalopes with four eyes. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. But but she does it because she thinks it's cool and cute. It's not anything symbolic. Right. But who knows? Maybe, you know, it's a Freudian slip of something in the collective unconsciousness. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Unfortunately, I don't have anything to add to this thing. It's just so silly. Like Amish people seeing a sheep squash thing that's trying to take away geese and eats wood off of sides.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. I have one that kind of I became obsessed with this after I first read it and tried to find everything I could about this. But this is pretty much this is pretty much all I could find. I, I found other things, but it just repeats this and i even tried to get in touch with the relatives of Uh these witnesses and never got a reply um for some reason this one just when i came across it it's like huh this was in dunn north carolina close to here and this is from the book fairies by janet board the next witness was an eight-year-old boy who in 1976 saw a little man not much bigger than a coke bottle near dunn north carolina ton lee barefoot was alone and playing with a toy shovel in a cornfield Looking up, he saw a little man watching him open-mouthed. He was wearing black boots, blue trousers, and a blue shiny top, the prettiest little white tie you ever saw, and a black German-type hat. He ran off fast with a squeal like a mouse. Conley found some small footprints and took his mother to see them. Others saw them, too, including the managing editor of the local newspaper, Fred H. Boast, who said that the tracks were definitely those of Little Boots' cleat marks were easily discernible. I failed to count the number in the first set, but there were 14 in the second set, which was clearer than the first. Individual prints were two and a quarter inches long and about one inch wide at the broadest point. Tonley's sighting was made on October 12th, and Boast reported that a fortnight later, on October 25th, 20-year-old Shirley Ann McCrimmon also saw a little man. He was either wearing a thin garment or was naked and light brown in color. He wore no hat, but he did wear boots and she found a small footprint. Fred Bost found another. He commented, The strange part about the footprints were that they led nowhere in any of the locations where they were found. The ground was soft in both areas of the cornfield, yet in both cases, the footprints ended abruptly. The ground was hard where the footprints were found at the McCrimmon home, yet around the back where the little man was said to have disappeared, there was a garden area with soft earth, but here no footprints could be found. Now, there was a blog entry about this case that gave the best, oh God, I'll have to find it and send it to you. It's mm-hmm. really good, and it mentions that the cornfield of both of the sightings was the same cornfield, just different sides of it. Oh wow. so yeah, within two weeks of each other, but I like that one. <laughs>
0: yeah, you can send me the blog. I'm gonna be yeah. linking everything in the episode description because we're we're essentially plagiarizing <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely. and I, I even thought about your own show like. Dudes, your whole show is plagiarizing other people's stories. The funny thing is I started, um, I
1: have files of links for the first 12 or 13 episodes. Mm -hmm. And we've done all that. I just, I'm lazy. Yeah, I know. It's it's, (laughs) it's so much work.
0: But uh, I'm going to be linking everything in the episode description because especially the last two uh, stories that I'm going to share are very, very long. And I'm going to read them verbatim.
1: Oh, okay, good. Yeah, I'll send you that.
0: But but this case that you're talking about, it's essentially where, where the footprints end, but nothing related to Bigfoot. Yeah. <laughs> and isn't it interesting how footprints are this whole phenomenon? Like everybody associates footprint phenomena with Bigfoot. But right. then here you have this uh, gnome little man thing and the footprints are, are, are of boots. Yeah. And then you have during the Jersey Devil sightings, the hooved footprints, as well as the hooved footprints I think in uh, England as well in the uh, early 1900s.
1: Right. And then with the UFO wave of 73 and 74 that I love so much in uh, Pennsylvania, they were finding the three toe Bigfoot Mm
0: -hmm.
1: prints, which is fantastic.
0: (laughs) Yes. I do think that, like, there is something. Let's say if paranormal phenomena is psi, you know, if it's parapsychological in nature, if maybe the witnesses can manifest these imprints into the ground by going through these experiences. Right, Because I have heard of Psy experiments where they are trying to, let's say, call upon a ghost so the ghost can imprint an imprint of its fist into wax. Now, is it a ghost or an entity doing that, or is it the people who are conducting the seance? And let's say if you're going through some kind of psychedelic paranormal experience, whatnot, are you activating some kind of psychokinesis where you are now manifesting these imprints onto the ground?
1: Right. Right. Yeah. We, we talked about that. Me and Lisa talked about that last night with Brad Steiger's early research. And it was, you know, they were like, how much of this, the ghost phenomenon is energy from adolescence. You know, of it is something else. You know, it's it's very strange that seems to be a a common factor that these adolescents going through emotional turmoil is part of the equation. You know.
0: Yes. Yes. Very interesting. I I think somebody should write a whole book just about footprints and not bigfoot footprints. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, unfortunately, they can't use where the footprints end as a title.
2: Yeah.
0: (laughs) But also, I wanted to say I interviewed Fred Anderson, who is a swedish producer of paranormal television and a high strangeness enthusiast and he has compiled a lot of cases in scandinavia where people see these gnomes or dwarves or little people emerging from uh, light orbs just as you know people say bigfoot emerges
1: oh that's all awesome.
0: yeah so it would be interesting to note if there were any footprints in those cases
1: right Right. Fast. okay
0: well on to my next one and this one <laughs> gets even more weirder and is relevant now that nope, the movie is a thing. (laughs) I just waited for the perfect opportunity to tell this story because I don't know how else I would cover it. And this is from Trevor James Constable's book, The Cosmic Pulse of Life, but he also wrote about it in his next book after this one, which was Sky Creatures. I think it's Sky Creatures. And this was a letter that was sent by a witness and was originally published in Ray Palmer's publication, Flying Saucers, in October of 1959 by a witness named Don Wood Jr. Now, are you familiar with uh, Charles James Constable? No. Okay, so uh, you will be surprised by this. I'm not going to spoil anything. Uh, did you at least watch Nope, the movie?
1: No, I still haven't watched it. I'm aware of it. I haven't watched it. But...
0: Okay, th- this will maybe spoil the movie for you, but let's go on. Let's do it. <laughs> I must write you of what happened to me in 1925. Remember, 25, like f- uh, 20 years before even UFOs became a thing. Right. Which I think solves most UFO reports. I have never told this to anyone, but can get signed affidavit if needed. Four of us were flying old Jenny's OX5 motors over the Nevada desert. One plane was a two-seater, the one I was in. We landed on a flat mesa near Battle Mountain, Nevada. The mesa is about 5,000 square feet and the walls are too steep to climb unless a lot of work is done. We wanted to see what was on top of this flat place. We landed at 1 p.m. While walking about the top of this place, we noticed something coming in for a landing. It was about eight feet across and was round and flat like a saucer. So this is, you know, a saucer landing on a flat mesa that is unreachable by foot and sighted oh, wow. uh, by two pilots who landed their plane there. And this was like in 1925 before saucers were a thing. Right. The undersides were a reddish color. It's skidded to a stop about 30 feet away. This next, you won't believe. And I don't care, but it's the <laughs> truth. We walked up to the thing and it was some Animal, like we never saw before. It was hurt, and as it breathed, the top would rise and fall, making a half-foot hole all around it like a clam opening and closing. Oh, wow. Yeah. Quite a hunk had been chewed out of one side of this rim, and a sort of metal-looking froth issued. When it saw us, it breathed frantically and rose up only a few inches, only to fall back on Earth. It was moist and glistening on the top side. We could see no eyes or legs. After a 20-minute rest, it started pulsating once more. We stayed 10 feet away. And so, help me, the thing grew as bright as all get-out, except where it was hurt. So this thing is eight feet in diameter, glowing, except for this injury that it has, and is breathing. And while it's breathing, its rim is opening up like a clamshell. It had a mica-like shell body. It tried to rise up again, but sank back again. Then we saw a large round shadow fall on us. We looked up and ran. Coming in was a much larger animal, 30 feet across." (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. It paid no attention to us, but settled itself over the small one. So this large 30 diameter animal thing uh, was floating above the eight foot diameter thing that was injured four sucker like tongues settled on the little one and the big one got so dazzling bright you couldn't look at it both rose straight up and were out of sight in a second they must have been traveling a thousand miles an hour to get so high so fast when we walked over there was an out (laughs) man this this letter is written so poorly (laughs) (laughs) When we walked over, there was an awful stench, and the frothy stuff the little one had bled looked like fine aluminum wire. So, you know, the entrails that this thing bled from its wound were like aluminum wires. Oh my god, wow. (laughs) Wow. There was more frothy, wiry stuff in a 30-foot circle where the big one had breathed. This stuff finally melted in the sun and we took off. So help me, this was an animal. I have never told this before as we knew no one would believe us. I only write this now because this animal would be one big 30-foot light if seen at night. I don't expect belief, but I simply had to write.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad he did.
0: This is one of the most famous cases of what is termed atmospheric beasts. It's also known as the Nevada Giant Space (laughs) Clams. But essentially, Trevor James Constable is the guy who postulated the theory that UFOs are actually animals in the atmosphere. You may know that he is famous for taking infrared photography of what he saw in the sky as atmospheric jellyfish or amoebas. Yes.
1: Yes. Yes. I remember that. Yeah.
0: Yes. And this is one of the cases he keeps repeating on and on in his own books, but it was originally published by Ray Palmer right now I think uh, I saw I have the cosmic pulse of life and sky creatures uh he contacted this pilot after the fact and verified that he is telling the same story
1: yeah I think HP Lovecraft had a story similar that, to that but it was in the 30s maybe he took that as and ran with it you know for his own work
0: huh interesting well yeah. this would not have been published because before because it was published in in the 50s okay but may- maybe he he heard the story of this happened in the 20s. I find it very interesting because like it starts as a UFO landing case and like this is an animal. It's opening up like a clam and breathing and it's injured and it's bleeding aluminum wire (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But the funny thing is, like, it's glowing. So he even says, like, if this thing was in the sky at night, it would be, you know, perceived as a UFO.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Another interesting thing is, like, this larger entity comes swooping in and attaches four tentacles to this thing and just takes it away. (laughs) <laughs>
1: hey, I'll I'll do a short one. This one I know you're aware of, the Walletton Park gnomes.
0: Wow. <laughs> okay, I need I need to tell you dude, last night I was uh, interviewing Morgan Daimler for the second time for my show, and we were talking about anecdotal uh, gnome fairy cases, you know, for modern times and how they incorporate technology, and we talked about this case.
1: <laughs> oh, good. Yes. Yeah, I love it. And this is just a short telling of it from the fairies book. The witnesses were a small group of about four children children aged eight to ten, and the events took place in September nineteen seventy nine in Wallaton Park, Nottingham. They were in the park grounds at eight thirty PM when it was getting dark, but there was still some light to see by. In a swampy area with trees fenced off to stop the public from entering, the children saw around 60 little men, about half as tall as themselves. They had long white beards with red tips, though one who was positive the beards were black, and wrinkled faces. They wore caps on their heads, described as being like old-fashioned nightcaps, naughty style, with a bobble on the end. They also wore blue tops and yellow tights. For most of the 15 minutes that the children spent with them, the little men were in little cars. There were 30 cars with two men in each. One child said the cars were green and blue, one said they were red, one said red and white. Perhaps they were of mixed colors. The cars didn't have steering wheels, but a round thing with a handle to turn. There was no sound of engines, but they traveled fast and could jump over obstructions like logs. The little men chased the children, but didn't catch them, although they could have. The children were sure it was only a game. They said the men did not talk, but laughed a lot and looked friendly. Joyful, one child said. At no time did they touch the children, nor did the children touch them. They were also seen up in the trees coming out of and returning to holes the children felt that they could only come out when it was dark despite the disbelief of their parents when told about the little men the children were adamant that they were not making up stories they also claimed to have seen the little people before during the long summer holiday their headmaster interviewed and recorded them separately soon after the events and despite a few discrepancies in their accounts and differences of emphasis the children do sound truthful yeah i i'm fascinated with this one too (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, a lot of people are a man like even morgan daimler who wrote 60 books on fairy lore was uh, <laughs> was mentioning that case to me last night
1: yeah i've been meaning to pick Some of her books I haven't yet, but I've watched her YouTube videos and they're great. Mm -hmm. Um, But this one reminds me of the line here where it says they said the men did not talk, but laughed a lot and looked friendly, joyful, and they didn't communicate. This reminds me of uh, Terrence McKenna talking about doing DMT Mm -hmm. and in the DMT space meeting these entities which he calls elves
0: machine elves yeah
1: machine elves yeah and he said it's like they're they're doing something and showing you hey do this you can you know <laughs> like but they're not communicating they're just like i i don't know it it
0: aha uh-huh. so so it's like they are enticing you to join in
1: right right but not communicating
0: when i was interviewing jeremy vaney for my show he was talking about his own abduction experience and this is something that stuck with me about his whole experience like there was this room with people laying on tables and there were these little gray like things that were gesturing to him with their hands like ah see you this is what we do come on join in Right. They're not saying anything or telepathically communicating. It's like they're gesturing with their hands and acting all childish and playful.
1: Exactly. That's exactly what I was saying. Yeah, that that's fascinating.
0: Now, I brought up to Morgan Daimler. Oh, she brought up actually, that with these anecdotal fairy accounts that involve technology, it looks like the fairy, fairies have technology that is behind, like... A few decades from our technology right and also it seems let's say with men in black encounters you know they wear clothes that are out of date they ride retro cars with fairy accounts it's always the clothes is also retro or technology is retro so i find it interesting if anybody points out that these the model of these little cars may be perceived as retro at the time
1: right <laughs> Yeah, it's so unusual. It's just, it's fascinating. The Yeah, I don't know what else to say about it. It's a good one. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: okay, let's go on to my other story then. Hey, listener. I fucked up. Uh, for the next story, we lost about eight minutes of Shane's audio. But no worries in an effort to preserve this story because it is one of mine and... We lost Shane's whole story after that. Instead of Shane's audio, I am interjecting AI text-to-speech voices of everything that I think Shane told me during this segment. Though, disclaimer, what you hear may or may not be what actually Shane told me. (laughs) Now don't be a whiny baby, it's only 8 minutes. And it's hilarious. Some of you even listen to whole podcasts which are based around interjecting shitty robotic voices for laughs. Fucking weirdos. So enjoy the next Next eight minutes of comedy goals. Okay, so this one I wanted one case from your own uh state. Is it North Carolina?
2: Yes, it
3: is.
0: Okay, great, because I thought wow, if I fucked it up and you're actually from South Carolina, then I'm gonna be an asshole.
3: <laughs> you are an asshole regardless.
0: Okay, I don't know if you listened to my recent appearance on another podcast, uh, Bug in a Rug podcast. No.
2: I'm afraid of bugs.
0: We talked about this case briefly in the, that episode, but it's, it's not a case. It's more, uh, it's an indigenous legend. And it's from Monsters of the Tar Heel State, Cryptids and Legends of North Carolina by David Weatherly. Now, the story... I love that book. Okay, okay. Do you have his other monster books?
3: No. I am very biased towards my own state. Anyway, how many did he write? He puts out a shit ton of them.
0: Yes, yes, I think 13 by now. I have them all on Kindle. You cheap fuck. And I really love them. Now, I was searching for other sources of this uh, this story, and there are on the internet, but I really like the way David Weatherly wrote it, so I'm gonna read it verbatim, plagiarize.
3: Ha ha ha, copyright infringement. My favorite hobby.
0: But like listeners, (laughs) go buy David Weatherly's uh, Monsters of States books. You know, they're, they're fantastic. And every book has, you know, amazing cover art by Sam Sheeran.
2: That's Mr. Sam Sheeran to you.
0: So this one. I talked about briefly on that episode, but let's talk about it here in depth. So, Western North Carolina's Nantahala Gorge is a stunning 8-mile formation known for both its beauty and danger. Cut in the distance past by the waters of the Nantahala River, the gorge is so steep that it was once known as the land of the middle sun, because daylight only reaches the bottom of the gorge when the sun is at midday between the formation's high cliffs. Are you maybe aware of Nantahala Gorge?
3: Yes. I've been there.
0: Okay, okay. So you probably know what it looks like.
3: It is very wide, but not as wide as your mama.
0: The gorge's rugged scenery runs along US Highway 19 between Wesson and Nantahala in both Macon and Swain counties. According to Cherokee legends... One of the most dangerous monsters in the region once lived at the bottom of the Dark Gorge, Ulagu the Giant Yellow Jacket.
3: Sounds like a load of beeswax. Have you
0: heard of the Ulagu legend before?
2: My ex-girlfriend was Cherokee but never told me about this. Neither did your mama.
0: Okay, this will be a doozy for you. (laughs) Exactly. Just like your mo. So, Ulagu, which translates as leader, was a massive beast that could fly at great speed. The creature was said to be as large as a house, big enough to carry away large game and children. When it approached, the buzzing of its wings drowned out all other noise, and great winds were created by its movements. Mind you, this is a giant yellow jacket, (laughs) the size of a house. The sound of its flight was akin to rolling thunder. I can't help but feel this is kind of a variation of a thunderbird legend, because, you know, it's Native American, but instead of a bird, it's a giant bee hornet
3: I love talking about the
0: birds and the bees. For a time, the Cherokees were terrorized by the creature, watching helplessly as it swooped down and snatched up children. Hunters would attempt to follow the creature so they could find its lair. They would watch its flight and listen to the screams of its victims as they tried to follow its path. But the beast was so rapid that they would quickly lose the trail, and Ulagu would claim another member of the tribe. After years of terror, the Cherokees finally came up with a plan to find the giant's nest. They set out traps baited with fresh meat. Around the hunks of meat, the hunters tied string, planning to track the dangling string as the giant insect flew away. Now, I don't know how this would work. Like, how big of a string do you need to attach to meat to follow a giant, you know, bee in the air? I like doing it with no strings attached. Unfortunately, the scheme didn't go as planned. I mean, obviously. (laughs) While the monster did snatch the baited meat, it was still too fast for the hunters to track. Hoping to slow the creature down, the hunters increased the size of both the bait and the string, and tried again. After numerous attempts, the men put out a full deer as bait, complete with a long rope tied to it. This time, when Ulagu snatched the bait, Its flight was slowed by the weight of its victim. Now, since this is, you know, a Native American legend, uh, and, you know, I I can only be silly and say what's with the string and stuff, but I see, like, the progression of adding more meat and more string to this thing as if you want to hunt something down, you need to offer a hefty sacrifice. You can't just give it a bit of meat. You need to give it a whole deer. You need to sacrifice your own well-being, like, even with fairy lore, with the fairy, fairy tithe, The giant yellow jacket flew slower and, and at a much lower altitude. The hunters pursued the creature as it moved just above the treetops, the long rope a dangling trail. The yellow jacket's flight soon led to a high ridge and the hunters watched as the creature vanished into the side of the cliff opposite their position. Ulagu was nesting in Nantahala Gorge. The determined Cherokee warriors climbed down into the Great Gorge, then up the opposite side. When they approached the monster's cave, a great wind blew from inside. The rush of air was from the beating of the giant yellow jacket's wings. Peering inside, the hunters saw the top of the cave. It was covered with a thick comb that had numerous chambers. The cave was also filled with thousands of normal-sized yellow jackets, the giant Ulagu's offspring. With both the yellow jacket and so many normal-sized ones inside, the hunters couldn't enter the cave lest they be stung to death. But there was another way. They would fill the cave with smoke to destroy the beast.
3: Smoke weed every day. Also, this is a reference to the meme. We do not condone drug use. Isn't that right, Shane?
0: The Cherokee men gathered brush and wood and built a massive fire at the cave's entrance. They fed the fire over and over, filling the cave with thick smoke. Ulagu was killed by the smoke as were many of the normal-sized wasps. A few escaped, heading for the woods where they spread and multiplied. Cherokee legend says the insects spread around the world and that modern wasps are their descendants. The cave where the warriors killed Ulagu is still known as, uh, Tsugagunyi. (laughs) That's the best I can pronounce it.
3: Don't make fun of accents, you ignorant prick, mate. Let me put an extra shrimp on the barbie for you, mate. Or,
0: where the yellow jacket was. So th- that's a legend about how Yellow Jackets came to be. And as you can see, it's very akin to even like uh, Greek Norse mythology, this like a uh, whole tribe battling this giant beast. Your mama. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Interesting. You sick fuck. Yeah. Now, in the episode where I guessed it, we were talking about the Aversboro Galleynepper. I don't know if you're aware of that
3: one. I don't want to borrow a galley nipple.
0: Okay, but so there is this North Carolina town, it's a ghost town now, Aversboro, that had this legend uh, of a lumberjack who was attacked by a giant mosquito. Now, when going into the local Native American folklore of the area, there is the Tuscarora tribe who has stories of the Roteo, which was a human-sized mosquito.
2: A giant parasite just like you.
0: Yeah, but how the Tuscarora killed that giant mosquito is that the the warrior struck an arrow through the heart of the mosquito, and then this giant mosquito fell apart into thousands of small mosquitoes. And then the mosquitoes we have of today are descendants of those small mosquitoes. So it's a very similar legend to this Ulagu myth, but how the Cherokee killed Ulagu is with wits, you know, by smoking it, while the Tuscarora killed the Roteo, the giant mosquito, with violence with combat. So I find it fascinating how, you know, two different tribes from the same area have very similar legends, but take a different spin to it. And, uh, they both are kind of like origin stories of how a certain species of insect came to be.
3: Okay, man, we can go to your. (laughs) Well, you fucked up the recording. So now we need to skip my amazing psychedelic story that will never be heard in public because drugs are bad. Remember kids never do drugs unless they're approved by your doctor in profit of greedy pharmaceutical companies. You don't really want to expand your mind, that's why you're still listening to my bullshit. We lost Shane. Well, who am I kidding? I forgot to record.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm recording locally and w- with the Zoom with Shane. So locally, my Ulagu story was recorded. And that's why you did not hear Shane's reactions to the story. But Shane shared a whole interesting story of a guy going through a time slip that was kind of like a DMT experience where he was born, lived a whole life and died. And we went into th- this intricate conversation about consciousness and the uh, how we are all, all tapping into something collectively. And I realized we were not even recording. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, man. So it looks like that conversation was meant to be private between me and you. Yeah. Well, we can go to your next story, the long one.
1: Okay. This is one of my favorites. You know me. I love the Bigfoot in conjunction with strange lights and craft stories.
0: Oh yeah. Ah, man. I, I should have known that you would leave that one for it. For yeah. And <laughs> I was thinking whether my last story should be a Bigfoot one, but I thought, okay, no, I'm going to do something else. Okay. <laughs> so it's good that you're you're um, ending with a Bigfoot story.
1: Yes, absolutely. This one is just mind-boggling to me. It's of course from Silent Invasion by Stan Gordon. And this was one of the in the intense UFO wave of 1973, 1974, and this was Pennsylvania. February 6, 1974, Fayette County, 10 PM. The state police barracks at Uniontown received a call at 10 PM from Miss Marks, the daughter of Miss Ham. Concerning some strange occurrences that had just taken place a short time before. The location of the occurrence was a remote rural location close to Ohio Pile. The state police dispatcher took the information and contacted a trooper by radio to respond to the scene. Also, the officer in charge was notified of the occurrence. The dispatcher knew from Miss Mark's voice that something had frightened her, and he did not laugh at her strange account concerning what she described as the shooting of creatures from a spaceship. It was during this period in history that that the United States was experiencing a natural national trucker strike, gas rationing was in effect, and there was some shooting bouts on the roadways. Due to this national emergency, the National Guard was backing up the state police in Pennsylvania. Along with the trooper, one National Guardsman also responded to the location. When the pair arrived on the scene, the strange activity had ceased. The trooper learned that a strange lighted object out in the woods had departed a short time before its arrival. They interviewed the witnesses and searched for evidence. The ground was frozen from the cold temperatures and no footprints could be found. Another state trooper and two additional National Guardsmen also arrived on the scene to assist. The primary state police investigating officer told me that both witnesses appeared to be reliable and one woman was visibly shaken. What convinced the investigators that something odd had taken place was the way the animals were reacting when they arrived. Between Miss Ham and the Marks family, there were a total of four dogs at that location, including beagles, a bird dog, and an Eskimo Spitz. The investigation Officer told me how all four dogs were physically shaking, hiding in their housing, and would not bark at all. One officer tried to physically move one of the dogs from inside of its cage, and it would not respond at all. Their horse was also unusually nervous at this time. That animal generally runs for its oats to eat when they are put out, but had to be physically taken to a barn for its meal. Even then, it would only take a bite and then run off, which was not its normal behavior. The horse was also frequenting a section of the barnyard that it would never normally visit, so the animals are totally freaking out. Uh The cats in the Marks trailer were also acting frightened. The cats were continually following Miss Marks everywhere she went and wanted to cuddle close to her, which also was not their normal behavior. Miss Marks also pointed out that her six-month-old baby was up on night crying. The child had never done this since it was born. George Lutz and I arrived at the location of the incident early the next morning, since we could not get gas the night before. When we approached the area, the dogs were acting normal and barking loudly at our arrival. We met with the primary witness, 59-year-old Miss Ham, who lived in a small rustic home. This woman had lived in the woods all of her life, was very familiar with animals, and feared few things. Miss Ham took us around and showed us her animal pins, and then we went into her home, sat down at the kitchen table, and set up our tape recorders. Miss Ham then described the events of the previous evening. It was between 10 and 10.30 p.m. when she was in her house watching television. Suddenly, she heard the rattling of tin cans on her front porch. There had recently been a pack of wild dogs that came through the area, and she assumed they were in her garbage. Miss Ham loaded her 16-gauge double-barrel shotgun with one shell of eight-shot ammo. Her intent was not to shoot the dogs, but to scare them away. Once the chamber was loaded, Miss Ham switched on the porch light and stepped into the the doorway. To her shock and disbelief, there were no dogs there, just six feet in front of her, Stood a huge, hair-covered, ape-like creature When the light was switched on The creature raised its arms over its head Miss Ham's first thought was that The beast was going to lunge at her she fired her shotgun at the creature's midsection. At that moment, the creature physically vanished in a flash of light. Ms. Ham said the flash was very bright and was like the flash of someone was taking a picture with a camera. When the creature was seen, there was no sound or smell detected.
0: Yeah, but but she, she shot the creature and saw a flash. And it's like, oh, the Bigfoot flash. No, it's not my gun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I will never forget the words that
1: Miss Ham used to describe the appearance of the creature to me. She said it looked like a great big hairy ape. She never mentioned the term Bigfoot. Miss Ham said the beast was over seven feet tall, stood erect on two legs, and was covered from head to toe with dark gray hair. The entire episode only lasted seconds so she did not notice other physical details. After the shooting, she went back inside her home and sat down, quite shaken over what had occurred. The Marks family, including her son-in-law, daughter, and grandchildren, lived about 100 feet away in a mobile home. Tom Marks called Miss Ham on the phone to inquire about the gunshot they had heard. She told Tom what happened. The man loaded his 22 revolver and made his way toward Miss Ham's residence. As he approached, he saw a dark figure running down the road, but he could not see any detail. But as he approached, near the woods he saw four or five shadows of hairy people as he continued closer to the house the creatures begin to approach him at a fast pace he shined his flashlight toward them and became frightened at what he saw. He dropped his flashlight but aimed his revolver toward the beans. The creatures Tom saw were similar to what Miss Ham had described. Over seven feet tall, covered with hair, but these creatures had eyes that glowed like fire, even in the darkness. Tom noticed that the creatures had long arms and walked upright on two legs, but with an awkward movement. He also did not notice any sound or smell when he was near the creatures. Tom was frightened and fired two shots at the hairy monsters then ran off toward the house, not looking back to see what was happening. When he arrived at Miss Ham's house, he hurried inside and loaded his revolver. Tom was persistent that he wanted to get one of these creatures. Although this was his second experience with them since the previous November, he still could not believe that such beasts could exist. After loading his gun, Tom went back outside but did not see any creatures. However, he saw something else very strange. An unusual blinking luminous object was above the trees deep in the woods. There were no light sources in that area to confuse these phenomenon with. The light was shaped like a Christmas ornament, blinking a red, bright red color in a pattern somewhat similar to a police car emergency light. After seeing the UFO over the woods, he ran back to his trailer to get his deer rifle. He also told his wife to call someone for help. Miss Marks then called the state police. While George Lutz and I were on this scene investigating a humane officer also arrived, we discussed the case and the three of us continued to search for evidence. We searched around the property as well as the woods where the mystery light had been seen. We did locate BB pellet type holes in a tree, which would have been directly in line with the location on the porch from which Miss Hamm had shot at the creature. We also learned from the officer that there had been a recent rash of mysterious animal attacks in that area, and that four of those cases were not easily explainable. During our interview with the witnesses at the scene, some other unusual details began to surface. It was just after midnight after the state police and National Guardsmen had left the scene when Miss Marks called her mother to see if she was calmed down. The phone rang for a long period with no answer. She dialed the number again and let it ring many times again. Still, Miss Ham did not pick up. Tom was asked to go back to Miss Ham's house to check on her. Tom still unnerved from the previous creature UFO encounter, refused to walk the short distance and instead drove over. When he arrived, Miss Ham was sitting down and awake. She wanted to know why he came to the house at that time of night miss ham told tom that she had heard him slam the car door when he was getting in and when the car passed by her window the phone rang her daughter had been calling her on the phone constantly until her husband got into the house miss ham said the phone just wasn't ringing or i would have heard it we also learned of other strange experiences it was approximately two weeks before the february shooting incident when miss ham was awakened by a tremendous thump as if something very heavy had hit her house Other people who had been reporting creature encounters also reported a similar lumping. A search around the area found nothing that could account for the noise. About a week prior to this February event, Miss Ham heard an odd noise outside of her house late one night. Upon opening the door to look outside, she turned on the porch light and saw a bright flash of light ahead in the yard. The flash was similar to what she saw when she shot at the creature. Miss Ham reluctantly told George and I that during the past summer when she was sleeping at night, she would feel someone touch her shoulder and she would wake up very startled since no one else was in the house. At hmm. times, she would feel a presence in the house, but nothing was seen. The strange experiences around the Ham property seem to have started with Tom's November 73 creature encounter and came to an end with the February 74 incident. Yeah, I forgot. There
0: was a the son-in-law had had an
1: experience the year before with uh-huh. seeing a creature on there. I forgot to mention that.
0: Okay, but in this story, was that son-in-law mentioned?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. He was the guy who was surrounded by four or five of the creatures with the red eyes.
0: Wow, very interesting. Yeah, I was going to say everything is happening around this woman because there are some kind of parapsychological things going on there, like poltergeist right. activity.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yes. Now, I also know that there are cases where people shoot at Bigfoot and nothing happens to Bigfoot and he is like, okay, you win, and then just goes away, you know? Yeah, <laughs> that stuff.
1: yeah that's always been interesting to me, the interaction with mm-hmm. that, where the the Bigfoot just seems to give up. It's like you could totally win in this encounter. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes.
0: Yeah. There is also a case that my friend Cole Harold, who I mentioned earlier, covered on his blog. He has a whole article on sky squatches, So Sasquatches oh, wow. with wings. Yeah. And there was one in Texas where I think... Uh, hunter and his son uh, were attacked by a flying Sasquatch and they shot at the Sasquatch. But you, nothing happened to it.
1: Will you send me that?
0: Yeah, I will. I will. Thank you. So I find it interesting all of these cases where people actually shoot at Bigfoot and nothing happens to it.
1: Yeah, it, it's over and over again. There's so many of them. And even going back to the Ape Canyon incident, the, which which I think is a fascinating story. You know that one, don't you?
0: I probably don't because I'm not that big into Bigfoot. Oh, man. I'll send you this
1: one. you'll love it. This was in the 20s. And uh, where was it? Um, oh, man. I'll think of it in a minute. It, it okay, was, but, but what happens? So a group of gold prospectors there was several of them went out to this area uh i think washington state and they were you know they were looking for gold they were sure there was some there and they just come across these creatures these bigfoot one of the guys immediately shoots at it and they're obviously you know it's it's a point blank range he obviously hits it well falls down into the canyon. He's like, yeah, I know I hit it. No problem. You know, they look over the canyon. It's gone. There's no Mm -hmm. trace of it. That night, they have this little shack that they're staying in there. And the shack is... Uh, attacked by a pack of these things. They're on the roof, they're banging on the walls. And uh, so, so
0: it's like the Kentucky Goblins, but Bigfoot. Right,
1: exactly. But they there were a couple of times, and it lasted all night until in the morning, and then it it seemed to stop when the sun came up. And they got out of there, and they reported it and all that, and, and it was, at the time, it was a big thing. People would go out there and try and find these things. But there were several times during the encounter where they're like, I know I shot it. But it didn't do anything, you know?
0: Yeah, but that that then reminds of this encounter that you read. This right. lady shot Bigfoot. And then later, this other dude was circled by many of them with glowing right. red eyes. With
1: glowing red eyes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, if you shoot one of ours, we're going to come after you yeah. in groups. <laughs> Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, it's fascinating to me. It's just, uh, I have no answers. None. <laughs>
0: there, there is a similar thing, but it's alien related. It's called the Mojave incident. And there's a book Mojave incident.
1: Oh, it's, I love that. Yes. Do you love that one? I do. I do. It's one of my favorites.
0: Yeah. I don't, I really don't know how reliable it is because the book was written by a guy who usually writes fiction. Right. But he uh, was approached by this couple who shared the story and wanted him to, you know, document it in the form of a book. And it's, it's an encounter, a case that is not talked about anywhere. <laughs>
1: No, and it's one of the things besides being a the descriptions of thousands of these things Mm -hmm. descending upon them, which is the thought of is just insane. They went through a very intense emotional experience through this. Yes, I mean, it it, you can't help but feel sorry for them if this was a, a. true thing and i keep coming back to the these cases that really interest me i keep coming back to the question well what was the point what was the purpose of this you know and um yeah the mojave incident is another Mm -hmm. great example of multiple phenomena. when remember it was a part in there where they were so they were at the pit of despair Mm -hmm. and they just thought they weren't going to get out alive and a um what they called an angel came to comfort them
0: yes but also they are uh, fundamental the two witnesses oh i didn't uh, know that yeah yeah that makes sense. i think that that's a factor why they did not share their story or go very public with it right. but for the listeners essentially a uh, married couple went to celebrate i i don't know their anniversary or something right uh, in the mojave desert in a trailer in the middle of nowhere yeah and they were attacked by thousands of aliens thousands. descending upon them yeah <laughs> it's like the kentucky goblin incident but like thousandfold. <laughs> And another very interesting
1: piece of that case that we see over and over again is the aliens like they were mining for minerals like they were collecting something from the desert mm-hmm. which I, I keep coming that's something I never really paid attention to before but here lately I've been seeing that in a lot of these cases like um, stealing electricity or water or you know
0: water is a very big one I right. have a whole book about UFOs in water and these cases of UFOs descending onto lakes and scooping up water yeah it even happened in the Betty and abduction really yes yes uh, the UFO She saw they were like vacuuming water out of a river or lake and scooping a fish as well. Wow. But with the Carl Higdon abduction, you know that the alien told him that they were uh, taking the fish of Earth for feeding
1: oh wow yeah
0: because their home planet he went to the planet with carl and showed carl their planet has yellow water or something like that because of pollution and like because their waters are polluted they need to take the fish of earth uh, for feeding wow yeah there there's a story
1: there's an account on have you seen the new david politus ufo connection that... i
0: did not but i did listen to our strange skies talk about it <laughs> Oh what did they say about it I'm interested you know it's very critical of david politis as yeah. it should be because he's, yeah, of course. you know a douchebag yeah. but uh, from what i gathered in the documentary their whole theory is that these things are taking deer that are infected with the i don't know what the disease is called the chronic wasting disease of deer
1: right i i was very i don't know what to think of that i didn't see that coming but i thought there was an account in there that was very interesting to me about a group of hispanic men who were they were work i forget why they were working there but they were out working colorado or something and they were seeing elk sucked up into the ufos
0: yes yeah
1: And and that was fascinating. And then later on in the documentary, I'm sorry I don't have the names or anything, but the later in the documentary, a man in that same area reported an abduction experience and he said they explained to him why they took the elk and that it was Mm -hmm. like the same they were saying, We come and we take it for our planet. And
0: yeah. And even Carl Higdon's abduction was a part of that documentary. And I think when when they found him and he w- went to the hospital, he was constantly saying, they took my elk, something like that no, that I'm sorry, that's the one I was thinking of.
1: Carl's Carl, Carl oh. Higson. Yeah. Yeah. And um there I've put that book in my Amazon cart, but I haven't ordered it yet. The,
0: I oh think okay. The wife- but but the, the the other encounter you're talking about with the with the Hispanic man, I think that, that's not the Carl Higdon abduction. That's something that happened earlier, I think. Right. That uh, was
1: that was just yeah, it wasn't related. It was just I yeah. think it was in the same area.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it was basically two guys seeing a UFO a tractor beam an yeah. elk.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah I liked it and I like I everything David Politus puts out. I enjoy it. I don't necessarily agree with him on his um conclusions and I and you can definitely tell he's got a massive fucking ego mm-hmm. but Besides that, I d- I dig his stuff. I can take his stuff and not, you know.
0: Oh yeah, I like my friend I think Fred Anderson tweeted a few times. He likes those documentaries because of the scenery. Like there's no other documentary where you have these cool drone shots of national parks.
1: Absolutely. There's some <laughs> and, and sadly
0: there. you need to get that content from such bullshit as David Platt's. Right. And and I, I'll
1: forever be grateful to him for I think it was his Missing 411, the hunted documentary was what introduced me to the Ron Moorhead and the Sierra sounds. Yeah. I had never heard of that before. And, and that's, I'm totally fascinated with that. And I think that section of that documentary, this was just incredible. It was so good. Yeah. <laughs> The Ron Moorhead stuff. It's it's been a rabbit hole I've enjoyed going down. And just a side note about that, there you know I'm a record collector, right? Yeah. Ron Moorhead and those guys put out a seven-inch record in nineteen seventy-four of those Sierra Sounds. And wow. it is imp- I have been trying to find it for two years. I've never seen a copy. I've never even seen a picture of that record but it is one of my most wanted records and i'm constantly trying to find it and i still haven't found one i'd love to get a hold of it <laughs>
0: <laughs> you remind me now of the x files they had an episode where like the holy grail could be a cup or something yeah it has these grooves like a record that <laughs> recorded the voice of jesus uh, resurrecting lazarus <laughs>
1: Oh, that's great! I love it. <laughs>
0: oh man, well, to be frank, for my last story, I left it very uh, spicy because I know you love in- uh, sexual encounters with other worldly entities. I do. Now, I had another story that I planned, but thought not to do it because it is essentially a woman having an encounter with Bigfoot while she was attempting to shoot it. She saw that it had an erection and then, you know, comedy ensues. Yeah. And it's a whole tabloid story. And I thought maybe it would be, I don't know, sexist or you something might. to read it. Yeah. <laughs> but I know I you'd that. enjoy it. Yeah. But since I know that you love David Hoggins, I found something very similar, very interesting and written in a very gonzo style. Oh, wow. Yeah. So what I'm going to read provides a lot of insight into a different culture and to how people use these sexual encounters with entities stories to kind of escape the shittiness of their life uh, and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. So what I'm going to read is not necessarily the case because the case was most well-documented in China. And I don't... (laughs) You know the language or have access to the original material and TV appearances of the person. Right. But what I'm reading is a more a gonzo journalistic interview and interpretation by the journalist of how the story impacted the person's life. Because I find it very fascinating and something that we do not often go into when talking about people such as, let's say, David Huggins uh, or uh, Antonio Villas-Boas, you know, yeah. who had these sexual encounters with entities and may provide us more of an insight into just what forces people to share these stories? Right. So this is from the Huffington Post. It was released on April sixth, two thousand fifteen, and it's titled "Meet the Chinese Lumberjack Who Slept with an Alien." So you know, very tabloid esque yeah. title, right. but the article is very good and very Gonzo styled. It's by Michael Meyer, who is the author of In Manchuria: A Village Called Wasteland and the Transformation of Rural China. All right. It start It starts off with a quote. <laughs> Like if you can't find me, Meng Xiaoguo said over a cell phone whose signal faded from its isolation, Just head to the last house on the logging commune lane, or ask anybody who's around. Everyone knows the first Chinese person to allegedly be abducted by aliens. With its surging economy, China is summiting once unseen heights in world rankings, millions of English speakers, almost the most millionaires, and actually the least frugal tourists. Yet despite being slightly larger in area than the United States with four times as many people, China trails far behind when it comes to visitors from outer space. To date, only one Chinese person, Lumberjack Meng Zhaoguo, claims to have slept with one. And I hope I am pronouncing his last name correctly because ZH I think is... Uh, I first visited Meng at his home on the Red Flag Logging Commune, set among the remains of a forest in China's far northeast, an area historically known as Manchuria. Chinese characterized northeasterners as big-hearted, industrious, and sometimes a bit touched in the head. So it was not a shock when the nation's first person claiming interstellar relations came from In 2003, I traveled over a winding, ice-covered, one-lane road through the forest to meet him. On the commune, Meng lived in a two-room timber frame house he had built with his own hands. Bare yellow light bulbs dropped from the ceiling, and there was no phone or cell reception. But a big-screen Sony television filled one end of the room. Out here, it only picks up two channels, he said. So it's a waste of money, but I didn't buy it. A businessman brought it after he heard about my story. Another visitor from Malaysia had brought him a cow. I sold that, Meng told me. Cows cost money to take care of. What am I going to do with a cow out here? So this guy is already, you know, a very famous alien abductee in China, and already people are, you know, giving him gifts and contacting him because of his story. Yeah. (laughs) And apparently he got a cow as a president and can't do anything with it, so he sold it. This this is why I like this article, because it is very realistic. It, It portrays what somebody is going through apart from, you know, the case, just their life. Yeah. We stepped outside boots, crunching snow and faced the dragon mountains veiled in purple mist as the. day's light faded. Meng said that on a night much like this in 1994, he saw a metallic glint shimmer off those peaks. I thought a helicopter had crashed, so I set out to scavenge for scrap. <laughs> he was not setting out to help anybody, but rather scavenge for scraps of a <laughs> helicopter crash. <laughs> he made it to the lip of a valley, spying the wreckage in the distance. When boom, something hit me square in the forehead and knocked me out. He awoke at home. He told me with no memory of how he got there. But a few nights later, he woke to find himself floating above his bed, as his wife slumbered beneath him, a ten-foot-tall, six-fingered alien woman with thighs coated in braided hair straddled his waist. Meng and the alien copulated for 40 minutes. Now... So this is how this uh, little blurb writes about the case. Now, I read about the actual account from other sources and essentially what was happening. He woke up finding himself levitating above his sleeping wife, who was below him. And from the ceiling emerged a 10 foot tall giant woman who had six fingers and very hairy thighs. And she mounted him, and they had intercourse for 40 minutes above his sleeping wife. Wow. (laughs) And it's very David Huggins esque because, you know, it's a giant alien woman. (laughs) Yeah. So the article goes on to say, She then disappeared through the wall, and I floated back down to the bed. She left me with this. He undid his trousers to reveal a two-inch long jagged mark that he insisted bore only a coincidental resemblance to a scar resulting from a slipped stroke of a saw. (laughs) So he's the one bringing it up like she left me with this scar. No, it it does not look like the stroke of a saw. It was from an alien. (laughs) I asked him to draw the creature and he took my pen and tore off a sheet from a roll of rough unbleached paper. To my surprise, I recognized the alien as he made tiny X's on the alien's inner thighs. I realized Meng was sketching a hairy cousin of the Michelin Man. (laughs) (laughs) his smiling puffy white face waved from atop an auto repair shop at the base of Red Flag Lodging Commune. So, you know, he was already aware of the Michelin Man because he was seeing it around this commune all the time. I thought of that and the empty crates of five-star beer stacked just outside Meng's front door and the remote loneliness of a northeast winter. But Meng told the story calmly, not in a desperate or pleading tone, cajoling the listener to believe. I kept my deductions internal and he suggested Suggested we go outside with his kids and light the fireworks I had brought for them that night. I slept fitfully on Meng's bed while he took the couch in China. The government monitors faith in anything but the Communist Party, but an expression of belief in extraterrestrials is permitted, as it falls under the purview of astronomy and the scientific socialism the party supports. A ufology journal has a circulation of four hundred thousand. That's probably a Chinese UFO journal. And the UFO associations across China boast a collective 50,000 members. China UFO Research Center has held annual conferences before splintering, as organized groups of believers tend to do, into rival factions. The president of the Beijing branch is a retired foreign ministry official who, after seeing a UFO, believes aliens live among us. After Meng's story circulated among enthusiasts, the media came calling, leading to his appearance in national newspapers and on television. He was even the subject of a debated Wikipedia page, which listed different versions of his story, including being taken to the alien's home planet of Jupiter and ongoing... Harassment from the extraterrestrials. Journalists look for discrepancies in my story, he told me the next morning at his house. I get tired of telling it. In the end, I'm just a peasant. <laughs> Meng added that a month after the alien had visited him, he again woke to find his body passing through the world map hanging over his bed. He levitated through the stratosphere and into a spaceship where aliens circled him. They said in Chinese, but with a very heavy accent, so it was hard for me to understand at first that they were refugees. Like me, they wanted to escape their former lives, so they left their dying home. That echoed the tales of many Chinese migrants, including Meng's desire to move his family off the defunct red flag logging commune. Now, this reminds me of uh, stories like, let's say, with Indrid Cold, you know Woody Derenberger, and even his book, Visitors from Lanulos, where Indrid takes him to this faraway place yes with these kind of contactee cases it's always like somebody who is you know marginalized who is living a life where they're barely scraping you know enough to survive and feed their family it's like these stories if something really happens to them they start making up these stories as kind of comfort and escapism right like the alien savior coming and taking me away to a far off land where everything is much better
1: right yeah I see that too yeah
0: yeah And it's interesting that we see it now with a Chinese person, so it's not just an American thing. Right. Meng asked to see his alien paramour, the one with braided hair on her inner thighs. Impossible, they replied. But then they said something that made me hopeful. In 60 years on a distant planet, the son of a Chinese peasant will be born. This reflects the Antonio Villas boss case, where he was left with the assumption that uh, his child will be raised on another planet. Yeah. Now. Th- they said, like, in 60 years on a distant planet, <laughs> a, a, the son of a Chinese peasant will be born. Like, what is this alien pregnant for 60 fucking yeah, years? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. this is what the journalist noticed. This was a stroke of genius. Meng had introduced Chinese class consciousness to outer space. He also made sure that few people who heard his tale today would be around to see its proof.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and while my Northeastern-born wife declared his story a lesson in the art of Northeastern bullshitting, the story was also an example of self-invention, transporting Meng, his wife, and children from the last house on a logging commune lane to a metropolitan campus after a university official reached out and offered him a job.
1: Nice.
0: When I sought him out there when researching my book in Manchuria, a village called Wasteland and the transformation of rural China, in Harbin City a decade later, he again told me to head to the last building on the lane or just ask somebody where it was. Everybody knew the first Chinese person to be abducted by aliens. There he stood in full grin. I am very happy to work here, he said. It's quiet, I'm in charge of the boiler and watch the steam pipes. It was a better job than felling trees which were now protected. His co-workers at Red Flag Logging Commune had either left or stayed to farm soybeans. Meng wore a clean white tunic, slacks, and loafers with short black hair pushed neatly to the side. He looked thinner, healthier, and just as earnest as before, but he was tired of retelling what became known as the Meng-Jaguo incident. Talking with him is how I imagined it would be to interview a former adult film star embarrassed about his past. Mm -hmm. When students say they recognize me from He said, I tell them that was somebody else who looks like me. But his notoriety had landed this job. A friend told me about it, and when I came for the interview, the boss had seen me on the news. He said, The college provides an apartment with heating. My wife and daughter are working on campus as well, and my son attends a good Harbin Middle School. He's studying English. Life is better for him here than in the forest. When he retold the tale over lunch in Harbin, only one detail had changed. I asked the aliens if I would see my child, he added. They said yes, but they would not tell me where. I made a joke, but Meng didn't laugh. Once, humans believed that the earth was flat, he said. Even a decade ago, people would not believe that a cell phone could work. Humans, if we have never seen something with our own eyes, naturally doubt that it exists, or that life could be that way. I was the first to be brave enough to say, I saw that. But you know, Meng said, nodding collegially, He looked directly into my glasses, which in the bright northeast sunlight reflected his own face and concluded, when you live up here, you see strange phenomena all the time. And that's the end. (laughs)
1: Nice.
0: I find this very fascinating because the guy had allegedly a sexual encounter with an alien. Then it went into this whole contactee route, as we see, let's say, with Woody Derenberger and other contactees who have this w- w- one-off experience with an entity. Right. And, and not always sexual, like, okay, but we're, if we're talking about sexual, let's say David Huggins, you know? Right. And then it goes into how this actually helped him in his life, because f- from telling this story, people who are... Are interested in the stuff who are enthusiasts of the alien nonsense actually helped him out and he even landed a better job right which helped him and his family so is it that people who who have these kind of contactee experiences kind of make up these stories to gain recognition or is it that something actually happens to them to force them out of a bad place in their life like maybe he really had some kind of experience Right, and the experience forced him to share it and to be, uh, you know, celebrity for for a brief moment until he was noticed enough for somebody else to draw him out of the misery of his, you know, existence uh, into a better life.
1: Right, I'm not sure, but I'm glad it worked out for him. And what a, yeah, that's that's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> the um, I wonder if he had all that in mind when he shared it.
0: I don't I don't think so. Like, yeah the more i I ponder over this, the more it seems like real genuine phenomena actually happens with people. yeah, but oftentimes we see with people like, okay, initial phenomena can be scary and traumatizing, but eventually it leads to good things in life. it transforms them. And it's like this shamanic process. He is imprinted by the sexual encounter with an alien. He starts talking about it. He receives recognition by other people who are interested in this stuff because there are, you know, a lot of businessmen who are interested in this stuff, but keep it quiet. They contact him and help him out. And in the end... He became better off. He found a better job. He started supporting his family. His son is studying English in, in a good college, all because of this experience.
1: It it would be interesting to take, to somehow study contactees who had had these experiences and didn't talk about them mm-hmm. and kind of compare to see if they, if they had negative outcomes because of that, because I'm not talking about it, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. It would be very interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I know Antonio Vida's boss was, I think, later on became a lawyer or something. Like he was very successful in his life. Yeah. Um, David Huggins, I would not say he's very successful, but I mean, as an artist, he is, and he's making money now via his art and his story.
1: Absolutely, and his art's yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So it, it is like the phenomenon can sometimes force people into becoming many celebrities, but forcing people who live on the margins, who are not in a good place in their life. Right. like Antonio Villa's boss was just a farmer. His encounter was while he was, you know, tractoring the field of his farm. He, and he ended up becoming a very famous person in these ufology circles and becoming a lawyer himself. David Huggins, it, does he work in a deli or something? <laughs>
1: Yeah, but he's got a great VHS collection. Have you seen that documentary? <laughs>
0: I, I have to see the documentary oh, because I'm planning okay. to maybe do an episode about him.
1: Yeah. Yeah. If you do, uh, let me know because I'd love to uh, mm-hmm. hear your thoughts on it.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, Yeah. I, I need to do a lot of research and I'm planning to maybe do it with Cole because Cole wrote like a 24 page article just on David Huggins and he's uh Huggins biggest fan. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like you can see even David Huggins is a marginalized person and through this, like even if it all is just a confabulated fantasy, who cares? It is something that allows people to, and not just escapism, but it really transforms their lives because right. there are weirdos like us who enjoy this word enthusiasts and, Oh we, yeah, We make these people celebrities and we help them out in life. It's a, a community thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think there's people who make this stuff up. I mean, there has to be, man, you know, mm-hmm. but um, Huggins doesn't seem like one of those. He, It seems like something happened. And from the documentary, you see a lot of trauma in his childhood. And yeah, maybe that was a factor in why these experiences happened. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It would be very interesting to find out just I was never into the contact stuff because, you know when you first start getting into the fourteen. And especially yeah. the UFO alien stuff, you're, you're, you're all about, let's say, the reality of, of these things. Exactly. If it's real or not. So when you read these accounts of, like, a guy having sex over his sleeping wife with a 10 foot tall, six fingered yeah. alien woman <laughs> with hairy thighs, or David Huggins' uh, encounters with so many various entities, yeah. or, uh, let's say, Betty Andreessen meeting a phoenix that burned before her and turned into a gray worm that communicated with her, right? You can write that off as just bullshit and fantasy but the fantasy is the important thing here what what perpetuates the fantasy what forces people to have these experiences that are so wild that nobody would believe them right and how it impacts their lives because a lot of these people are transformed
1: yes yes absolutely
0: Yeah. Even with like George Jadansky, I think he may have had genuine experiences, but because he's an asshole and a scammer, (laughs) you know, he ended up being an asshole and a scammer. Uh, It transformed his life. It sent him down the path of creating his own cult and uh, scamming people out of their money. But uh, before uh, he had maybe some kind of experience, he was just a nobody who was uh, selling wine during prohibition.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What a great perspective. I I really- that last one
0: yes and uh, this is why i like gonzo journalism because it gives us insight into all the things going on around the witness and not just the case and whether something is real or not right Um, a few months ago rob rob christopherson of our strange skies did an episode where he read an article just like this about a lawyer in new york or new jersey who had a mantis encounter now when you read this case in every alien book they only focus on the mantis you know yeah But the Mantis is the least interesting part of the story because the whole article is gonzo journalism is about how this influenced his life, how he as a lawyer could not talk about it, especially in the workplace, how he could not go to a psychiatrist to talk about it. And by the end, he needed to go to Bud Hopkins. Yeah. Who, who is also not a good person to go to, um, <laughs> and especially if you have anything that is not gray related. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that, that opens your eyes just like where, where these people are in their lives, how these experiences influence them and what sends them down the road to maybe go to some kind of researcher. In, his, in this case of this lawyer, he needed to go to Bud Hopkins because he thought he was going crazy, but he could not talk to psychiatrists. Right. He could not tell anybody at work. He'd get in trouble. So, what, what do you do? Then right. go to Bud Hopkins, who is providing salvation for people who are desperate and in need. Yeah. So yeah, man, this was a a very interesting episode. (laughs) I'm glad we did this and kind of imitated your own show.
1: Me too, man. I was looking forward to this. I'm glad we did it.
0: Yes. So can you, for the end, tell my listeners where they can find you and plug your stuff?
1: Yeah. Like I said, me and Lisa do Dark Notes podcast. It's on all episodes are on Spotify. We're both on Instagram. She is at Dark Notes podcast and I'm at UFO Bigfoot.
0: Yes. And I'll be linking all that in the episode description and listeners just listen to dark notes podcast. If you want more of this wacky (laughs) nonsense and a (laughs) lot of these weird entity cases.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So Shane, until next time, I'd really like to do this again because there are so many cool cases that we can just share with each other.
1: Oh yes. I'd love to.
0: We we should maybe get Cole on board because he is the guy who really digs deep into these one-off cases.
1: Yeah. I'd love that.
0: Mm-hmm. okay well until next time bye right. guys <laughs> see ya